Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is your brain on drugs may make a compelling commercial, but the truth is we know precious little about the neurophysiology of drug dependence. Peter Morgan's work aims to fill in some of those gaps. This is Colleen Shaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs and Communications talking with Dr. Morgan about his findings and their implications for treating addiction. So let's start with some research you did on sleep and men who had stopped using cocaine. What did you find? Right. Well, we found several things. And the most striking thing we found was a sharp deterioration in their sleep over the course of a few weeks of abstinence. Mm Mm-hmm. This is something that had been observed before, but only in very small numbers of subjects. And it was called into question because other results suggested that people with cocaine dependence sleep actually improved over the course of a few weeks of abstinence. Yeah, that would be the intuitive thing because it's a stimulant. That's right. And when you ask people with cocaine dependence, at least in the studies that had been done previously, Mm -hmm. how well do they think they're sleeping? How tired do they feel? They report sleeping better and feeling less tired as they get away from the cocaine. But you found that what they reported wasn't actually the fact. That's right. We did polysomnographic sleep studies, and we found that their time spent sleeping deteriorated over three three weeks of abstinence, and that other markers of sleep, the different stages of sleep, also showed a pattern of uh, poor sleep that seemed to get worse and changed in its quality over three weeks of abstinence. And their perception of that was different, though. That's right. So they reported their sleep was better after being abstinent for two to three weeks compared to the initial period of abstinence. How do you explain that? Well, the initial period of withdrawal from cocaine includes feeling very tired. So cocaine is a powerful stimulant, and as it wears off, uh, people tend to feel very tired and initially may even have some trouble sleeping, Mm -hmm. Um, but then they go into what we call a hypersomnolence period. During that time, they don't feel like they're getting enough sleep, so they may tend to report feeling tired, and that their sleep isn't good because it doesn't seem restorative. I see. So the, the stress of not feeling like you're getting enough sleep, that's, that's horrible. I hate when that happens. Yes. Could that contribute to falling off the wagon? Well, that's interesting because it, on the one hand, our um, cocaine-dependent population that we've worked with don't identify the sleep problem as what makes them go back to using Uh cocaine. They actually saying they think they're sleeping okay. They don't sleep very much, but it's enough. But when we do tests to see how well they're thinking, they look very much like people who aren't getting enough sleep. Hmm. And it could be that they are experiencing the stress associated with not sleeping, some of the physiological changes that happen from not sleeping, but at some cognitive level, they're not recognizing that that is what's affecting them. So does that give you any clues of how you might help them with this hurdle? Well, it did give us a clue. Um, It made us think that there might be something wrong with the drive that regulates the perception of need for sleep Mm -hmm. and the drive that helps us go to sleep, what we call the homeostatic sleep drive. One thing that's common among uh, people with substance abuse problems seems to be deficits in slow-wave sleep. This is the deep restorative sleep that happens early in the night, typically. Mm -hmm. And people with cocaine dependence seem to have much less low-wave sleep compared to healthy people who are the same age. So could you do something pharmacologically to help them get a better night's sleep? That's right. So there are a lot of sleep medications, but most sleep medications don't increase slow-wave sleep. They may make sleep longer or may help people sleep get to sleep faster, uh-huh. but they tend to increase 
the lighter sleep that happens later in the night. There is one medication that showed some promise in the treatment of cocaine dependence called modafinil. It's actually a stimulant medication, and it's given in the morning. Uh-huh. We hypothesize that giving a stimulant medication in the morning may change the daytime physiology in a way that the nighttime physiology would also be affected, and that's what we found. Very interesting. So, you know, we know that substance abuse is devastating for individuals and very costly for society. Given all that, how would you rate the amount of science the clinicians have at their disposal to really inform treatment? It's disappointing. Yeah. You know, as you said, the, the burden to society of substance abuse illnesses is immense. And there has been a lot of science done, but compared to other categories um, that have similar burdens to society, the amount of research done in substance abuse is much less. And it leaves clinicians wondering, really, what they can and should do. Well, let's talk about some of the barriers to doing this kind of research. For example, you were doing sleep research, which uh, is logistically very difficult. What kind of support were you getting to help you along with that? Well, I received support from several angles. Probably the most important support I received the beginning of my academic career was a career award that I received through a Yale program. Uh Uh, This allowed me to devote almost all of my time to pursuing research. And was this the YCCI Scholar Program? That's exactly what it is, the YCCI Scholar Program. And, you know, early in your career, what typically would you have been doing rather than this kind of work? I didn't have the career award through the YCCI Mm -hmm. to allow me to do this work. I would have had to devote a lot more of my time towards basic clinical work, which I very much enjoy, but it does tend to get overwhelming and leaves you lacking energy and desire to do other things like research, particularly in this kind of research where it's patient-oriented research, you're working with um, people who mm-hmm. are participating in your studies, you really need to be available regularly um, to do this kind of research. Right. So if you have a large clinical um, caseload, it makes it very difficult to plan and execute these types you of studies. You can do this in 10% of your time or something like that. that you might no, there's no way. Gotten. Yeah. You know, your work is, is quite broad. We were talking about one narrow facet of it, but you look at obesity, substance abuse, lucid dreaming, is there a common thread here? What what makes you interested in something? Right. I, the common thread that's, I guess, been from early on in me is wanting to understand behavior. Mm-hmm. Why do people behave the way they behave? What can we predict and how can we influence behavioral choices? So from the early work I did in my PhD, it was on the sea slug. In the sea slug, it was a great model for looking at how an input leads to an output. Uh-huh. So you can dissect the animal, you can... Uh, expose the neurons. You can put electrodes into them and see what happens when you stimulate a neuron. You can see what happens when you wave seaweed in front of one of its tentacles and how that stimulates uh, a motor behavior for eating. I try to take this way of looking at the world Mm -hmm. to a much higher level, a more relevant level, and that of humans. And what can we say about human behavior and how can we predict it and influence it? So I think that's what brings my uh, research together. We're so much more complicated than sea slugs. We are harder to study. Very much so. Thank you. That was Dr. Peter Morgan talking about his work on substance abuse and sleep.